All right, so we are um, jumping back into the second half of the book of Ephesians. Uh, back in the fall, we covered the first half of Ephesians. Of course, this is a letter that's written by Paul, and uh, it was actually written when he was imprisoned for the second time. And uh, so he's writing all of these things you're reading from prison. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, again, which we covered um, several months ago back in the fall, are really all about the gospel. They're, you know, you were called, you were chosen, you were adopted, God sees you as holy and blameless. I mean, it's all, it really is three chapters of here's the gospel, here's the truth about who God is and about who you are uh, in relationship to God. It's all the gospel. And then what happens is there's a, a pretty, you know, marked shift beginning in chapter four, where Paul essentially says, okay, in light of all that gospel stuff, calling, chosen, adopted, predestined, holy and blameless, all those things, in light of all of that, he says, live like this. And really the next three chapters of the book of Ephesians are all about how it is that we're called to live our lives, again, in the light of the gospel. And so last week, we looked at the first six verses of chapter four, and what they talked about, Paul said, as a result of the gospel, be completely humble be completely humble. And what he was saying is make yourself, be willing to make yourself a servant in the same way that Jesus, who was God, made himself a servant. He washed the feet of the disciples, right? He came and uh, to give his life as a ransom, to die on the cross. He made himself a servant in the same way uh, what Paul is essentially saying is you need to be willing to be humble, to make yourself a servant as well. He also says, uh, in light of that, he says, be gentle, be completely gentle with the people that you're working with. You, you might have the right to be judgment, judgmental. You might have the right to be harsh. You might have the right to respond in all these ways, but especially when you have the right to be harsh or judgmental, especially in those times, be kind, right? Because Jesus was kind to you. He's still kind to us when we fail. And then he says, be patient as a result of the gospel. And of course, that word in Greek means that wrath or indignation is far, far away. And, and so when people come into contact with you, they ought to feel these things. They ought to feel gentleness. They ought to feel humility. They ought to feel like wrath and indignation is far, far away, all because of the gospel. Because as the gospel pickles you, as the gospel permeates you, it changes who you are. We're going to be jumping into verses 7 through 16 in just a moment. We're going to be talking about further implications of how we're called to live life in light of the gospel. But before we do that, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you again that you don't leave us in the dark about who it is that you are and who it is that you're calling us to be. And so, Father, I would simply ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit to um, enable us to believe the truth um, about who we are and about who you are. Father, I pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to reveal to us um, the broken places in our hearts, the pervasiveness of our rebellion and our sin and our self-centeredness, uh, but I, say, I pray at the same time, Father, that you'd give us your spirit um, to remind us that you are a, a good and loving Father and that your Son, Jesus, is our Savior. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things today. Amen. So, quick question, show of hands. How many of you guys spent the last, a couple days in the last week, just a little bit depressed that the Falcons lost? It's okay, right? You can bring that here to church. You can grieve. You can mourn, Right? I was, for a couple of days, I was kind of bummed, and you, you know what you inevitably heard uh, on the radio, at, you know, talk radio on ESPN, wherever it was, a lot of what you heard, you know, about was how the Patriots sort of had built this Super Bowl winning team and how it had spanned all of these years, and so what ends up happening is, you know, all these other teams look at the Patriots and they think, how can we follow that, 
that blueprint and build you know, a team that's going to be as successful as the Patriots have been. Part of what you've heard, too, uh, in the news and on ESPN is uh, how the Falcons also have done something very similar, right? How they've built a team that made it to the Super Bowl, almost made it over the top. And so you hear a lot about sort of the architecture of building these teams. And so I'm going to take two seconds and talk about the architecture of, of the Falcons. So first of all, we're going to look at the owner of the Falcons. This is Arthur Blank. Arthur uh, Blank is uh, the fellow who started Home Depot. So he's a mildly successful businessman. <laughs> he owns a professional soccer team. He owns the Falcons. Right, and as the owner of the team, what he was responsible for, you know, to do was ultimately to hire a CEO. And so the CEO of the Falcons is a guy named Rich McKay. And so Rich McKay probably sits in an office in some tall building somewhere, and he oversees um, the structure and the governance of the Falcons underneath, um, obviously underneath, um, of Arthur Blank. Well, so then what happens is the CEO then, along with Arthur Blank, is in charge of hiring uh, the GM. And so the GM is the general manager. The general manager not only hires the coaches, but then hires um, or recruits the players and recruits free agents as well, right? And actually, what's interesting is Thomas Dimitrov, who's the GM of the Falcons, hired an assistant GM whose name was Scott Pioli, who used to work for the Patriots and then was the GM um, for the Kansas City Chiefs, and he came on staff with the Falcons, right? They have Raheem Morris as the assistant head coach. He had been a head coach uh, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, so he has all this head coaching experience. And so they've got this really great leadership structure on top. And what the coaches are supposed to do then is to take these players and equip them, right, to do their jobs, right? So if you're the offensive line coach, it's your job to equip the offensive linemen to block for pass plays and for running plays. If you're the defensive line coach, who, by the way, got fired after the Super Bowl, bummer, Interestingly enough, the San Diego Chargers, sorry, the Los Angeles Chargers, my favorite team, actually interviewed him this last week, and they're in the process of hiring him. That would be so Chargers-like to do that. Anyway, hire the guy who got fired for the Super Bowl collapse. Anyway, but it's his job to equip the defensive line to play their gaps and to do their assignments, right? And so basically, there's this huge structure of, uh, of the one who's building the team. Then there's this sort of secondary structure of all the coaches, and their job is to equip people to do their job. And, of course, the goal ultimately is to make it to the Super Bowl and then win the Super Bowl. The Patriots have done it. The Falcons came very close. There are a lot, a lot, a lot, lot of similarities between any team, right, any organization, and the church. So the church is very much like a team. And uh, essentially, it's like a team in this. Without leadership, it's really doomed to fail, right? You have to have leadership at the top, whether that's the ownership, whether that's the coaches, without people playing their positions or doing the things that they've been called to do, a team and a church is really doomed to mediocrity or doomed to irrelevance. And then finally, without a goal, right, both the church and any team is also doomed to flounder. You have to have all those things. Now, we see each of those concepts, leadership, people doing the things they're called to do, and finally a goal. We see each of those things, each of those concepts here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. I'm going to put this up on the screen. I'm going to read this section of Scripture. And again, Paul, part of what Paul is saying here is in light of Christ's victory, here's what he has come to do. Here's how he's continuing to work out building his kingdom on earth, um, the church, starting in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. 
Paul's probably writing in a Gnostic concept or context here. So he's writing against some people who have some questions about whether Jesus was really God, whether he became really man. Verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. All right? So what do we see really quickly here in Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16, particularly about the church? What is the church supposed to look like? What are the truths about the church? And what we see is this. I'm going to really focus on three things. One, that Christ is building his church. Christ is building his church, right, in which everyone is called to do their particular part. part. So Christ is building his church, and in the church, everyone is called to do their particular part, and the goal for the church ultimately is to become mature, to become complete. So let's start off with that first clause that Christ is building his church. I'm going to start by reading verse 7 uh, through 12. Um, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, in verse 7 right there, it says, but to each of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That doesn't mean grace for salvation. It means sort of the power to do the jobs he's called people to do, the ability for certain positions in ministry so that the church, his body, might be built up. In other words, the church belongs to Jesus, Arthur Blank, and he's building it up as he sees fit. Now, I'm going to read a section of the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, Book of Church Order, Book of Church Order. And uh, this is a book or, that is this thick. It's been put together by our particular denomination. For some reason, it's essentially written in Old English. I have no idea why that is, but it's incredibly difficult to read. But there's a lot of good stuff in it. This uh, quote that I'm about to read is taken from the preface to the Book of Church Order. Listen to uh, this, uh, this quote. Jesus Christ, whose name is called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, having all power given unto him in heaven uh, and in earth by the Father who raised him from the dead and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all, he, being ascended up far above all heavens, gave all offices necessary for the edification of his church and the perfecting of his saints. Now, that's a lot of verbiage. I actually took out any number of different clauses, but essentially what that is saying there in the very beginning, the preface to the book of church order, this massive book, is what it's saying is the church belongs to Jesus, and Jesus is building his church. Let me say that one more time. This church belongs to Jesus, and he is building us up as he sees fit. It's not my church. It's not Bob's church. uh, It's not Jefferson's church, right? 
It's not Christus church. It's not the elders' church. This is Jesus' church. It belongs to him, and he is building it as he sees fit, right? That's huge. In fact, we have, uh, there's something, a leadership team here at the church we call the session, and the session is comprised of these people called elders who are nominated and elected by the members of Seven Hills Fellowship to, to govern the church, right, and to oversee the church. And we have a job description that's written up for this group of elders called the session, and in it, in the job description, we have, all right, here's what they're called to do, but then there's a section that we call values, and it's how we're supposed to do it. And there are six different values, the sixth of which is this, it's reverence, and so we'll, this will be up on the screen. And we read this uh, job description usually when we meet together just to remind ourselves of what we're called to do and how we're called to do it. But one of the values, the last one, is reverence, and it goes like this, this is God's church and God's flock. And we are stewards, right? We're management, right? We are stewards entrusted to feed, lead, and protect his sheep. So be reverent. You know, what happens oftentimes when there's church splits, when there's dissension in the church, what ends up happening is people end up sort of fighting out of their personal desires or their personal interests, right? Or, you know, they think it should be this way or that way. And part of what we're saying here is that we need to remember that this is God's church and he's building it as he sees fit. It's our job to protect, to lead, and to feed the people of Seven Hills Fellowship. We've been entrusted with this flock. We need to be reverent, right? It's like somebody lent me the keys to drive uh, their Porsche 911, right, or their Bentley. Like, I would take very, very good care of that car, right? I would treat it with reverence. In the same way, this is Jesus' church. He's building it as he sees fit, and we are to be reverent with his church. Part of the first thing we see in this passage. The second thing we see in this passage is this, is that it's a church in which everyone is called to do their part, right? And so Christ is building the church in which everyone is doing their part. They've got a, they've got a job to do, right? That's, that's the way that it works. And so here are the various things that should be happening in the church, and this isn't a complete list, but it's a partial list. One of the things that we're called to do in the church is equip. And so that's back to that passage about apostles and prophets. So verse 11 says this, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for the works of service. In the same way that we used that analogy of the Falcons earlier, the coach's job isn't to go out and play, but the coach's job is to equip the players to go out and play, right? And so what we see here is that everyone has a part. Everyone has a role. Apostles established the church. That's part of what they did, right? Then the prophets declared God's word to his people, what was true about him, uh, messages that he wanted them to receive. Evangelists proclaim the good news of Jesus' death resurrection and forgiveness. Pastors shepherd the flock. Teachers keep the church on target with who God is and who we are, and each one does their part in equipping God's people to do the work of the church, to build up the church. This means that these offices, again, don't do the ministry of the church, but really when it's working the best, they're equipping the people to do the work of the ministry of the church. Uh, when I was at Perimeter Church in Atlanta, the sort of the mother church of us, I would listen to the, the the founding pastor, Randy Pope, talk about these principles. And one of the things he always used to say was uh, he used to say, you know, you don't have to be a pastor to do uh, a funeral. And he would literally equip people in the church to do funerals for other people in the church. And he had this whole list of things. He would say, you know, you don't have to be a pastor to do a hospital visitation, right? In fact, he said, if you ever see me visiting a sick person in the hospital, He's like, it's actually way worse than you think it is, right? And, is, you know, and essentially what he's saying is, is that my job is to equip the people. That's then the people's job to go do the work of ministry. And when that happens, a 
church is actually far, far healthier. We're not doing that yet, but it's a goal. I have an illustration from uh, Harry Potter, but since we're running late, skip it. Sorry, Harry. Anyway, sorry, Dumbledore's army. Go read Order of Phoenix. Anyway, all right. The church is, uh, is to equip. It's also called to teach, right? So we're also called to teach. Listen to verse 15. Many of you, if you grew up in the church, are familiar with this verse. Um, I've probably understood it out of context for a long time, but let me read it really quickly here. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And again, like I said, I've already, I've usually read this or historically had read this verse out of context in the sense that I thought it was really about conflict resolution, and it can definitely be applied to conflict resolution, right? I can speak the truth when I'm angry. I can speak the truth when I'm indignant. I can speak the truth when I'm judgmental or arrogant, but I need to speak the truth in love, not only in conflict resolution, but in the context here, uh, the context is really about teaching, speaking the truth in love when you're teaching, when you're discipling, when you're educating, right? And I think the reason that Paul says this is, one, he's writing this with the background of the Pharisees, right? They were teachers, right? And it could be because it's very easy in teaching uh, to be, for teaching to be a context uh, where you can gain power, right? Or you can gain a reputation for yourself, or you can use that power over other people, right? Or you can do it in a way that's very judgmental. You can do it in a way that's very arrogant. And so part of what Paul is saying here is he's saying, again, in light of the gospel, when you're teaching, speak the truth in love, right? In love. Now, We've all had experiences with different teachers and professors who you're like, mm, I don't think that's coming from a loving place. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But chances are you've also had teachers where it has been coming from a loving place. Uh, it's funny, when I thought about this, I thought of one of my professors in seminary, a man named Dr. Peterson, Dr. Robert Peterson, who taught systematic theology. And one of the things that I noticed about Dr. Peterson right away is, you know, when you're teaching systematic theology, it's very easy to get into areas of doctrine and theology where you're disagreeing with uh, N.T. Wright, or you're disagreeing with John Piper, or you're disagreeing with, you know, any number of different people. And one of the things I loved about Dr. Peterson is whenever he would disagree with somebody on some point of theology or doctrine, he would say, you know, good old brother so-and-so, God bless him. And then he would say, but I think the view of justification is this. And he always did it in a very loving way that really demonstrated kindness and gentleness, especially to people he disagreed with. He taught in love, Right? So we are uh, called to equip, we're called to teach, we're also called to work. That's sort of a third thing we see in this um, section. Verse 16 says this, from him, the whole body joined and held together by, by every supporting ligament. So he's talking about the head is Christ. He talks about these leaders, which are probably sort of the more prominent parts of the body to use sort of body imagery. But then he even talks about these sort of finer points of the body that have to do work. He calls them the ligaments. They grow and build the body up in love as each part does its work. And so when I think about this, I think about all the people around Seven Hills Fellowship who do all the stuff that's invisible, right? The people that bring water in the morning, right? The people that bring coffee, the people that bring food, uh, the people that oversee children ministry. There's a, a ton of people right now upstairs uh, sort of taking care of, you know, one-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, doing all this stuff, and it's invisible, and it's hard work, Right? Kevin Fitzsimmons volunteers with the youth group. He's been doing it as long as I can remember. 
The deacons do all this work around the church that's invisible. Mike Scudinga oversees the tithe. Brenda Briggs has led a women's Bible study for years and has overseen financial aspects of the church since the very beginning. Totally invisible. Emily Mattson leads a busy ladies Bible study. Julianne Bailey oversees the usage of the great room. And the list goes on and on and on. There's lots of ligaments in the church that are causing all of this to happen. The people of the church ultimately are the ones who are supposed to do the work of the church. In fact, uh, one of our values for Seven Hills Fellowship, I just mentioned one of our values for the, um, for the general session, but one of our values for the church is every member a minister. And the little tagline we say is that we believe that people shouldn't just go to church, but instead that they should be the church. In other words, that what makes you the church, what makes the church great ultimately is when people are really pitching in and they're using their gifts and their abilities for the purpose of building up the church. We are to do the work of ministry, right? So very quickly, Christ is building his church, his church, right, in which people are called to do their part. And finally, what's the goal? The goal of the church is that we would become mature, right? Verse uh, eight fifteen says this, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect mature, the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. And so when, we think, when I think about this idea of becoming mature, I think about raising children. And when you are raising your children in a healthy and good way, you're not raising them to become dependent, more and more dependent upon you. You're raising them to become more and more independent, to need you less. You want them to reach a point of maturity so that they will eventually leave your basement, right? So that they will get a job, that they will pay their bills on time, right? That they will begin, um, you know, maybe um, serving in the community in which they live. Maybe they begin serving in the church, right? Maybe they get married. Maybe they have kids. But you want them, you want to be able to, to, to sort of gladly and freely without resolve train them up for maturity to set them free. That's part of the illustration that's being used here. And so the question is, what does maturity in the church look like? Well, it looks like works of service. So let's read this little chunk of verses here. So part of uh, maturity is doing works of service. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. So a healthy church is a church where there really are works of service. There's shepherding going on. That's what the elders do, right? There's serving internal within the body of the church and external needs. The deacons are being equipped to do that. Bob met with them this morning. There's children's ministry. My wife, Krista, Katie Mahoney, Joanna Fife, John Capiste, Julie Bowling. There are all these people who, uh, who've worked in the context of children's ministry over the years, youth ministry, Katie and Kevin. And uh, the works of service really are boundless, right? But a mature church is established and, abil- and able to do works of service both inside the church but outside the church. That's our goal. We're nowhere close to being able to do that, by the way. But we're growing, right, towards maturity. So not only in works of service, but maturity also looks like unity in the faith. Again, back to that same chunk of verses. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. And let me call time out here really quickly and say, I don't think this means that every Christian has to sort of agree with everything. Right? I don't know if you've noticed recently but there are lots of different churches. There are lots of different denominations. There's lots of different uh, sort of disagreements theologically that go on inside of Christianity. And part of me wants to say, 
that's okay, right? There's lots of gray areas in the Bible for me, right? And I've studied it really my whole life, and I've spent really, you know, all of college, all of seminary, and in my professional life reading the Bible and studying the Bible. There's tons of gray in the Bible for me. So I don't think unity in the faith means that we all agree about baptism or we all agree about, you know, anything uh, except for the essentials of the faith. When we stand up here and do a membership on Sunday morning occasionally, I read five questions. And essentially what those five questions get to are this. These are the main things. One of those questions is, do you believe in the pervasiveness of sin? In other words, do you believe that you're actually more broken, more rebellious, more sinful than you actually realize, right? That's, that's, that's part of what I do think we need to have unity in the faith about. Like, we need to understand that we are in need of salvation because we're very broken. The second thing that I think is a, a sort of a, a core element of the unity of the faith is that we have to agree that redemption is through Christ alone, right? It's not through good works. It's not by the absence of bad works, but it's that Jesus is our hero, that he came in order to redeem us, to give us life as a ransom for many, to buy us back from sin and death. And then finally, part of unity in the faith is just a promise to try to live our lives the best that we can to submit ourselves to God and to Jesus and to say, not my will, but your will be done, right? And so I think that's what it means to have unity in the faith, right? So maturity, works of service, unity in the faith, Next one, knowledge of Jesus. Look at uh, sort of verse 13. He goes on to say, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. So one of my favorite verses in Scripture is John 17, 3. So John 17, 3 is uh, Jesus speaking to the disciples on the last night of his life. He's getting ready to go to the cross the next day. He's actually praying in John 17. And as he's praying to his Father, he says this, Now this is eternal life that they the disciples, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. In other words, for Jesus, sort of the essence of Christianity, sort of the essence of of following God is really knowing him and knowing his son, Jesus, not just about him, but knowing him relationally. Many of you have heard me use this illustration before, but Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, when he died, his sister was uh, uh, preparing his body for burial, And as she was sort of pulling his jacket tight around his dead body, she heard something crinkling. And she looked in his pocket and couldn't find anything in his pocket. And she looked in his shirt, couldn't find anything in his shirt. And uh, and she sort of felt the crinkling was inside the stitching of his jacket. And so she took a little knife and she pulled the stitching away and she pulled out a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper was written John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It was so meaningful to Pascal that he sewed it inside um, the lining of his jacket close to his heart, right? That's maturity in the Christian faith. Final thing. The final thing that Paul at least talks about here is fullness of Christ, right? And so let me, starting in verse 13, I'll read this. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Josh mentioned it this morning. Jesus isn't just our example, but he's our substitute, right? And part of what's being talked about here is actually the example part, is that part of us, we're ultimately called to look to Jesus as our substitute, but we're also called to follow him. We're also uh, being called by Jesus and by God to be more and more like his son. When I was in high school and in junior high, I had a coach, soccer coach, that played soccer for Furman University, and I had him for seven years. His name was Jay Wingo. 
And so you can imagine after playing for Jay for seven years, you know, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, et cetera, et cetera, all through high school, that when I started coaching myself after, um, after college, that my coaching looked a lot like Jay Wingo, right? Because he had modeled coaching to me for all of those years. In the same way, if John 17, 3 is true and we're seeking to know Jesus and to walk with Jesus, then part of what happens as we walk with Jesus and we know Jesus is we become like Jesus. That's what this means, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, right? That's part of what maturity means, right? So Christ is building his church. We're all called to play our part. And the ultimate goal is maturity, which looks like all of those things. Now, very quickly, let me, let me call time out here and say this. At the very beginning of that chunk of verses 7 through 16, there was a quote um, from the Old Testament. I'm going to read it really quickly. Uh, the quote is this, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, and here's the quote, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So this is Psalm 68. So David has written this psalm. It's a victory psalm. But Paul uses this to say this is really about Jesus. Now, anytime you're in the New Testament and you run across an Old Testament quote, it's very important that you go back to the Old Testament and see the context. Like, what's that, what's that psalm about, right? What's that passage in the Old Testament about? And so let me really quickly read verses 4 through 10 of Psalm 68 that gives you an idea of why Paul chose to use that verse in reference to Jesus and to his church. Verses 4 through 10 from Psalm 68. Sing to God. Sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. We're called to be a worshiping body. That's part of what the church is also supposed to do. We're called to worship our Savior. We're we're called to worship he who rides on the clouds. And what does this kingdom look like that he's creating? A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. When you, God, went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai before God, the God of Israel, you gave abundant showers, flourishing. O God, you refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled in it, And from your bounty, God, you provided for the poor, right? For those of us who come to Jesus knowing we have nothing to offer but our sin and our brokenness. So how does Psalm 68 relate to Jesus in Ephesians chapter 4? What Paul is saying here is that Jesus was victorious over sin and death, right? Psalm 68 is a victory psalm. It's victory in battle. And Paul says that Ephesians chapter 4, that Jesus has ultimately won the biggest battle over sin and death. And now, as the victor, he's establishing his kingdom in which he defends and provides for widows and the fatherless and for the poor, right? Powerless. In the wake of that victory, Jesus is establishing and building a countercultural kingdom called the church, which exists not only to glorify God and to worship him, but also begins to mend the fabric of a broken world, the fabric of a broken humanity. Jesus is building that church, his church. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you for the reality, the truth of the gospel. And Father, though we say we believe the gospel, I would add that um, very often I don't believe it, and I would ask that you would uh, help me in my unbelief. Um, I pray that you would strengthen our faith. Father, I pray that, um, again, your voice, uh, declaring that we are holy and blameless, declaring that we are adopted, declaring that we have been completely redeemed, declaring that you love us, I pray that your voice would be louder than any voice that resides inside of us, um, that is a self-loathing voice or a self-doubting voice. I pray that the gospel would be louder. Father, I pray that your voice, the voice of uh, declaring that we are your daughters and your sons, that you love us, that we're righteous, that we're blameless before you, that your voice would be louder than the voice of culture around us. Father, I pray that your voice would be louder than the voice of the evil one who seeks to accuse us and make us doubt your goodness. Father, please empower us to believe that you're a good, good father and that your son Jesus is our savior and that he's building us together to be his church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.